Loved, cherished, comforted. Welcome to the podcast ministry of Our Resolute Hope, where you will find grace, not just a concept or a doctrine of grace, but a person, a person whose name is Jesus, a person who brings hope, a determined, resolute hope that can sustain you and empower you to live courageously in this fallen world. Join us now as we learn more about Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and our life. Hello again, friends, dear friends. Thanks for joining us so much on today's edition of the Our Resolute Hope podcast. I'm John Russin, your host, here again with my dear friend, uh, Pastor Frank Friedman. Hello, Frank. Good to see you, even if it's just digitally today. <laughs> yeah, it's good to see you. You know, as I was pondering this podcast series, John, we talked 30 years ago about doing ministry together and doing a ministry that dealt with life in the trenches. You said that phrase multiple times and embedded it in my brain. And if ever there was a series uh, that we're doing, at least so far, about life in the trenches, this is it. So kind of need to see the Holy Spirit bring that to fruition, my friend. Indeed it is. All those years ago, eating all those Subway sandwiches. Cool. <laughs> well, uh, dear friends, if you have not been following us so far, over the past several weeks, Frank and I have been talking through his newest book, Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain. And over the past several weeks, We've talked about how many believers respond to pain, both in their lives and in the lives of others. Last week, we talked about a specific example, a very painful but powerful example of a young woman whom Frank named Susie, who had the courage to sit down, as Frank says, to sit down in her pain, to own it, and to invite God into it. And then after that, she became, as Frank said, a dangerous person in the kingdom because she knew the truth about pain and suffering and struggle in a believer's life. But today, my friend, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to turn the tables now, and we're going to get a little bit more personal. And this is focused on your chapter 11 called My Personal Journey with Pain. Now, I want to summarize, if I may, just a few phrases of what you described as your journey of pain, mm -hmm. uh, physical, emotional abuse, uh, the tragedy of sexual abuse, deceit, betrayal, lies, bullying and slander, both to you, and this is the part that really hurts a lot, to your kids, mm -hmm. uh, to have kids with unidentified debilitating disease. Now, my friend, this is quite a list. Mm -hmm. And you and I always joke about the Friedman curse. <laughs> mm -hmm. But Frank, as I look at this list, my friend, I wish that you were an outlier, that you were one of the unfortunate 1% and that 99% of people don't feel pain like this. But I know that's not true. What can you tell us about this circumstance in your life? Mm -hmm. Well, John, you know, as I was reflecting on the words you were reading, I, I just had a memory pop in my head this morning. I showed up at church and there's this little girl and her mama that are always waiting for the daycare center, uh, the preschool. 
and uh, she's the sweetest little thing. And when she sees me coming, she waves at me and runs to me and gives me a hug. And and today she ran to me and brought me a little flower. Wow, cool. And yeah, she was so proud of herself. She's such a precious little thing. And when I left her, I thought, oh, Lord, I just wish we could keep that little kid, that little kid, and spare her. Uh, the world that she's going to have to live in. You know, the number one need of a child is security. We need to know that we belong. We need to know where we belong. And and we need to know that we're protected and cared for. And a lot of us have that as kids. And then we grow up and face the world. And we find things happening to us that destroy that security. And then there's a lot of kids out there that never know that security in the first place. And then there are those that get the roller coaster where sometimes they get it and sometimes they don't. The bottom line is that there's not a one of us who hasn't experienced hurt and loss and sorrow in this world. We were all designed for the Garden of Eden. This isn't it. And so every one of us carries the the memory and sometimes the present emotion of hearts that never should have been. And that's, I think, what we tried to address in this book. And the lady that was helping me write this with my editor said, you know, Frank, you need to share a little of your story so that people understand that you're not talking from your study, that, but you're talking from the lab of life of a fallen world. So that's why we included this chapter, John, not to magnify my pain or my journey, but simply to share enough to be able to say, I've been there, uh, maybe not in the same circumstance, the same level of wound, maybe greater wound, but I'm in the community of those who have known pain. And that was what the purpose of this chapter was. Mm. You use the phrase, my friend, uh, you reached the point where there would be no more running. You decided <laughs> to stop and face your problems, so to speak, not really knowing what you're facing, because generally the presenting problem, as we know, is just a symptom. It's not really a root cause. Not many people make this choice. Why did you decide to do this? <laughs> well, you know, John, mask wearing is nothing new. Uh, we talked about that last week, and I had quite a bit of mask. Athletics uh, brought a lot of success to my life, and so I hid behind that veil of athletics. I wasn't certainly the classroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, athletics brings a semblance of popularity and that sort of thing. And so then, you know, dated a lot of girls through that. Unfortunately, you know, girls love athletes and that feeds the ego. And, and then when I found Christ, I, I simply carried that persona into seminary. And 
knuckled under in the classroom and got very good grades, but ended up being student body president of the seminary and then plunged into the role of pastor. And, and unfortunately, I think the methodology in the body of Christ is to put somebody up there that has it all together. And we say, follow that guy. And I think a lot of people look and almost live vicariously through that guy. You know, they look at the, this is our pastor, isn't, isn't he wonderful? And the bottom line, John, was that I'd never dealt honestly with the stuff that happened. I wore the mask, so I didn't have to deal with it. And it was almost like in, in 1988 on into 1989, the Holy Spirit basically said, you're not going to do that anymore. Uh, you're going to become real. You're going to become honest. And so he brought to my memory banks all that stuff that I had tried to push down so far that I wouldn't have to remember it. And unfortunately, well, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, really fortunately, it wasn't fortunate in experience. When those memories and things came up, the negative emotions came with them. The sorrow, the loss, the hurt, uh, the sense of betrayal, the deception that had occurred, the lies uh, that I had received. And, you know, when you build, I think I put in the book, uh, carefully built bridges of trust came tumbling down. And I, I don't know that there's a greater wound than to put your trust in someone and have them use that trust to wound you and take advantage of you very deeply. Oh, yes. And so uh, the word I use throughout the book is devastation. And that's what occurred in my soul. I, I would say it was almost, John, like having a nervous breakdown. I hadn't allowed those memories and emotions for so long that when they came to the surface, thanks to the Holy Spirit, <laughs> I didn't know what to do with them. But I did know that I, I didn't want to play that game anymore. I wanted to be, well, I would put it this way. I wanted to find out who I really was because I had been being what I was not for so long. Mm. Um, that would probably be the way I'd put it. Wow, what a great phrase. You're tired of being the person you are not. I guess that's, a, that's true of all of us. And, you know, sometimes God, the Holy Spirit, lets us continue in those ways for a profoundly long time. In his wisdom, uh, before he finally says, okay, son, okay, daughter, enough's enough. Now it's time that we're going to deal with this. And so I am, I'm so blessed that he, he pulled that string on you because when I look at your life now, my friend, back compared to when, when you had that crisis and I didn't understand it at the time, but I saw even right out of the box, a profoundly changed man that really made me go, wow, he, I don't know what he has, but he's got something I don't, and I need to learn about it. My goodness. Well, you know, John, I think I would put it this way in terms of word pictures to help people understand 
I think their own journey. Nobody likes to get hurt. And so when we get hurt, we form belief systems about God, about ourselves, about those people. And then we make vows because we don't want to get hurt again about God, ourselves, and those people. And when we do that, what we're really trying to do is build a castle of self-protection. I can remember as a young guy saying, I'll never give my heart to anybody again because it, it got trampled on. But unfortunately, in Proverbs 18, it's really clear that that castle of protection actually becomes a prison of our own making. And the beautiful creation that God made us can't get out. And we morph into somebody that we're not. And unfortunately, John, the sad reality is not even God can get into that prison. He has given us free choice. He'll never violate it. But what he will do, I believe with all my heart, is order circumstances that make us tired of the prison, tired of the castle. And we finally invite him in and say, you've got to do something with my life because I just can't do it anymore. Yeah. And that's uh, kind of what happened. Uh, interesting. As I've listened to you talk, my mind goes to a little bit of my background as well. And you know my story well, sir, but I'll share a few snips of it for our listeners. My background, my personal background also, uh, when I focus on it, becomes cripplingly painful, if that's where I set my mind. I was abandoned by my father at a very young age. This is back in the late 1950s, when basically nobody was divorced. Well, we were. And so as a consequence, I experienced intense poverty. All the shame that goes with, with that rejection by a father and not having anything that anybody else had, uh, feeling inferior, feeling insecure, uh, experiencing a number of abusive sexual events. But I want to focus just on one of those as I'm uh, sharing a glimpse of my story on the absence of a father. And what that meant was that I had no choice but to mm -hmm. look to a woman for a sense of value, a sense of worth, my security, my identity. I had no man to help mold that in me. Mm -hmm. So I looked to a woman and what the enemy did is that that morphed into a belief that I needed a woman to confirm my identity, my worth, my value. And I highlight that word need. It almost was important to me as my breath. In other words, as I got older, went through high school, went through university, if I had no girlfriend, I had no value. And so this is a big one for me because my first love rejected me as well. And it was a brutal rejection. I felt a horrible sense of abandonment. I felt like a big nothing. In fact, when I finally met the woman who is my wife now, I looked at her and I said, wow, I am a 23-year-old nothing. Mm. And I already had a university degree and working on a master's degree. But in my mind, mm. I was a big nothing. And mm. in retrospect, this girl, the first one who rejected me, she rejected me for good reason because I was clingy needy, mm. horribly insecure. So that's where 
my nightmare started. I could love women. I wanted women, but I couldn't trust them. So mm. you need something, but you can't trust them. And so here I am now. I get saved as a university senior. And did God step in and miraculously wave that magic wand and fix all that wounded little personality of a little boy? No, sir, he did not. I didn't even know I had a problem, Frank, mm. until about 15 or so years later. I'm married. I have five kids. I'm an elder in my church. Uh, I'm embarrassed to say that, but I'll say it. An elder mm. in my church and a crisis event happened. Oh, what I saw at that time was a crisis. It was just the Holy Spirit saying, okay, son, it's time. And it was a crisis in my relationship with my wife. So we came in to see you. I'm sure you remember this because we've talked about it a lot. <laughs> yes. And I still, now I laugh. I look back and I think about that first visit and you're sitting there with your pastor face and your pastor shirt and saying, what's on your mind? And I looked at you and I pointed my finger at her and I said, fix her. <laughs> she screwed up. <laughs> well, you know, of course, in time, uh, I wasn't the only one who needed fixing. Uh, or she wasn't the only one who needed fixing. I would need fixing too. And as time went on, the Holy Spirit began to open my eyes. And I began to see myself, not this little rejected, lonely, insecure boy, but a, a strong, powerful, wise son of the king who mm. hadn't ever really grown into his kingdom riches. That's the phrase that I like to use. Wow. And I was demanding of my wife something that no human is ever uh, equipped to give anyone. Mm. My goodness, Frank, my poor wife, I don't know how she survived. I don't know how she's still with me. I guess, uh, I guess she's pretty callous <laughs> toward me at least. <laughs> but uh, I tell you, a lot of time that we've done counseling over the years, my friend, We've seen that first romance, the first love has been such a powerful thing sometimes. Can you confirm that? Oh, yes, definitely. I think, John, that our greatest need as human beings, some people would say, is to be loved. I agree with that, but I think that we have so overused the term love that it's kind of nebulous. Just to affirm that, I would say something like this. I love my wife. I love my dog. I love ice cream. Well, when I say that, I just put <laughs> loving my dog on a par with loving Janet. It's more than that. And to me, the word that I would use is acceptance. I see acceptance as the verb form of the noun love. In other words, I can go to people and say, do you know I love you? And they say, yes. But then I go deeper, do you know that I accept you? And you can see their wheels in their mind turning. And many times people will say, you know what? I don't know that. And I think that's the way it is with us and God. We were wired to be accepted just for who we are. But we're born into a world where we are defective. We're born dead in Adam. And we're born in a world that's a performance law-based world. And so you've got defective people trying to perform to merit acceptance. And we just don't do a very good job of it. And people don't do a very good job of giving acceptance. And so it's a crisis thing almost 
to come to realize, to have your eyes opened that in Christ, God accepts us just the way we are. And that begins that transformation where, you know, in the scriptures says we are being conformed into the image of Jesus. We're being transformed day by day. And I just want to clarify, John, I don't believe at all that God causes evil in our lives. I mean, James is pretty clear. He is not have any evil in him. And Psalm 119 is pretty clear. He is good and does only good. But he uses certainly the evil in this world. In fact, it goes beyond using. I think he plans in the evil his own good. He actually uses evil to accomplish good. You and I are not saying that God's on an agenda of, you know, knocking the daylights out of us to bring us to the bottom. The world and ourselves and people do a very good job of that already, (laughs) but he uses it. And I would also say this. I think there's also a plan A. Plan A is Romans 2, the goodness of God leads to repentance. Plan A is teachable spirit that just looks at the world and goes, wow, there's a God and he's great and I want to know him. Unfortunately, I wasn't one of those. I'm the plan B guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am too. (laughs) And I think most people are plan B, but I don't think it has to be plan B. I think if, if we had the heart and the desire, God would meet us there. And that's my point. He's not on an agenda to to beat us into submission. I think that's very important that people understand that. Oh, yes. Uh, The fallen world and the enemy and our own silly choices and the silly choices of others, they've already done a great job of that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And but God steps in to say, hey, let me show you how I'm going to use that. And I'm going to bring you to a place where you understand how much you need me. And, you know, John, faith, I think, is born out of need. And my desire for acceptance was was born out of need. And when we find it in him, the glory is I'm a 10 on a scale of 10. And you're a 10 on a scale of 10. And now we can go back and look at that woundedness and uh, come at it with a very different foundation and purpose and find freedom in it. Yes, it's, it's difficult to imagine sometimes how you can find freedom and woundedness, but it is definitely true. I look at, you know, this event that happened in my life, I guess trying to do quick math, maybe 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, it didn't take long mm-hmm. before the dynamic of the relationship between my wife, Terry and me began to change noticeably. Mm-hmm. Remember her telling me, wow, you're, you're different. Mm-hmm. And so for 28 years, we've been learning together. Uh, I love that phrase. Can I, can I learning, learning together? Yes, we are. We are students and we're always going to be students. I'm so glad you said that. I'm Uh, I'm still learning (laughs) how much my father values me. I'm still learning that there is purpose in suffering. I'm still learning how to accept everything he gives it to me. And I'm learning, still learning how to accept my wife, Terry, as well, for all God has created her to be. And I think if you were to look at our dynamic now versus 25, 30 years ago, 
and be profoundly different. And mm-hmm. uh, I'd say I wouldn't trade it, but you talked about stepping into the pain and what causes that. What goes through my mind, Frank, when you say that is, uh, remember Daniel chapter three, mm-hmm. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I'm not going to use their, uh, their, the names that the, this heathen king clung on them, but those three, uh, Daniel's buddies, refused to worship the idol that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar gets mad. He gets so mad that he tells him, fire up the furnace, boys, seven times hotter. Mm-hmm. Tie up these three losers and throw them in. So that's what mm-hmm. they do. He, they tie up so they are bound, totally bound, and they are pitched into the furnace. And then a couple of verses later, what do you see? Nebuchadnezzar sees four, not three, in the furnace. One is like the Son of God. And get this, Frank. Scripture says they were walking free. Wow. So, wow. When I think about that, when fire, proverbial fire, comes into our life, pain, suffering, grief, we think we're in it alone. But we're Mm. not. There's another who will join us there, who is already there if we will open our eyes and see him. Mm. Uh, and then what catches me also is that, Frank, they were bound before yeah. the fire. It wasn't until they were thrown into the fire that they were made free. Wow. They were freed through the fire. Man, uh, mm. that, that just gives me chills when I think uh. about that. And it makes me, uh, I don't want to say this, I don't want to say bring on more fire, God, because I don't like it. But boy, the next time it happens, I want to remember this so Mm. that I face it differently. Wow, John, that is such a huge picture. If we run with that, he didn't free them from the fire. He actually freed them in the fire, but only in him. So in him, we are free in the fire. That's, that's just huge. And you know, when you said, I don't want a fire, but if it comes, I'm ready for it. That's exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12. He got that thorn in the flesh. He didn't like it. I mean, we're not masochists, right? No. <laughs> Get rid of this. It hurts. And God told him, no, son, you don't understand. You have to keep that thorn because it keeps you weak. And when you're weak, you'll stop trusting yourself and trust me. And when you trust me, you'll find strength like you've never known it. And Paul's response is, okay, bring on the trial, bring on the thorn. You know, it's not that we want the struggle, but we want the God that we meet in the struggle. And that was Job. He said, I found God in a way I never knew him. Uh, That was me. I found God in a way I never knew him. You found God in a way you never knew him. And that's so precious that I think that permanently changes our lives. It's almost like the Israelites, you know, when they went through the Jordan, they set up those stones as a monument. They said, this was a monumental event. Uh, and like with Joseph, it may have been meant for evil, but God was in it. 
and he meant it for good. Yes, indeed. Um, and one other comment I would make, John, when you said, I want to be better prepared when the trial does come, you know, Peter said, we shouldn't be surprised when the trials come. James said, they're coming. When Jim Fowler, my good friend, theologian, probably one of the most brilliant men I know, when I asked him to review the book, he asked me a question. He said, what did you learn from writing it? And I wasn't prepared for that, but it popped out of my mouth like a Balaam's ass moment, you know? And what I said was in the writing of this book and having to deal with what I've been through, what I learned was I did not do a good job of trusting God in my trials, but this has made me aware that I need to do a better job of trusting God in my trials in the future. Hmm. Um, I want to call to mind three different passages that were really instrumental in my thinking about, uh, about embracing pain and welcoming Jesus in. Psalm 34 says that God hears his people when they call to him for help. Ooh, that's a great verse. You know, whoa, he, you know, when you say, God, help, he hears. Yeah, he is yeah. near to the broken heart. That's right. He yeah. promises in Isaiah 41 that he will be with us to help us, to strengthen us. And get this, he will uphold us with his righteous right hand. So even in the midst of the fire, we are being upheld. And this is the one he affirms that, in fact, he promises that when we call on him, this is Jeremiah 29 now, we will find him. So wow. these promises are all over scripture, but here's where I think I failed so many times, Frank. I say, God help, I'm looking to you, but I'm not looking to him for him sometimes. Mm. I'm looking to him for relief, for escape, for a yeah. fix. And I think that's the difference, the way uh, sometimes we face our struggles with the way our big brother, Jesus, faced struggles. Mm -hmm. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted, intimately experienced, deeply, personally familiar with grief. He didn't look for escape. He just said, I don't understand, Father, but I trust you. What's our next step from here? And so mm -hmm. I think that's probably a critical point to remember, mm -hmm. that his promises for his presence are all over Scripture. And we need to stop looking for fixes and look for him instead. Yeah, he offers the provision of himself. And he is enough. Yes, he is enough. Uh, one last verse I want to cover, one last passage before we wrap this up. You referenced Job. And what happened to Job and what he learned and you've said this before, in the past, I knew what others said about you. This is Job 42. Right. You know, but now I know you personally. And you make this point. The word you know is an intimate knowledge, sort of like Genesis mm. 4, where Adam knew Eve. Right. He knew that he didn't face these traumas alone, he being Job. And mm. this is the part that gets me. I'd never seen this till I saw this in your book that on the backside of that struggle, after losing 10 babies and his fortune and everything he had, 
he had a bunch more kids and the names i'm going to ask you to comment on these names <laughs> he named one jemima because usually when i read mm. names in scripture i just say buzz 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 and zip over boy i'm not going to do that again his kids names were jemima which means daylight Kaziah, which means sweet smelling. Karen Hapuk, which means splendor of color. Quite a change for a man who, before meeting God, saw only darkness. Frank, what happened inside that man? Oh, John, you're bringing tears to me. Um, no, you know, it's a stunning, man. This is absolutely stunning. Well, you know, one of our problems as human beings is we're creatures of sight. And we see our struggle. We see the hurt. We see the loss. We see the devastation. We feel it. We have to see God with eyes of faith. And that's hard. But he promises, you know, seek me, you'll find me. Call on me, I'll be there. And that's what happened to Job. I love those names. One of the things we say in the book is that you have to have a starting point for your journey. If you don't admit your pain, you are like a hiker in the mountains without a map and a compass. You're, you're, you're going nowhere. You're not even starting a journey because you don't know where you are. When you receive the pain, there's your starting point. You invite God into your pain. Now your life is a comma. The pain is the comma, and he's going to write the rest of the story with you. And this is what happened to Job. If you look at those names, all he saw was darkness, and then he found God, and there was light again. That little girl's name, a splendor of color. Well, when you're in pain, all of life is kind of gray, uh, black and white. It loses its color. And if you think about the little girl with the sweet aroma, when you're in pain and struggle and you look at his life, lost 10 babies, lost his fortune, lost his friends, lost his wife, lost his health. I'm, I kind of think that that name had specific reference to the boils hmm. that he encountered because, you know, they would smell and he would scrape his skin. And I think, you know, that, one thing was probably the coup de grace for Job. You know, it's one thing to lose all of that other stuff and then to have your body go into a devastating, debilitating illness. illness yeah. yeah. And you can't escape. It's almost like more. I mean, you're going to that too. And at least if you had a healthy body, you could have some semblance of fight. But even that was taken from him. And I think that little girl is a reference to those boils and how he must have, you know, personally just smelled of death. And that's his memorial. That's the 12 stones that, like Israel put in the river uh, by the River Jordan. Those naming those kids were his memorial mm -hmm. to the faithfulness of God that what had happened to him truly was not the end of the story. And God wrote a different ending. I think it's around chapter 27 of Job. He says, I will never know joy again. And yet at the end of the book, he dies a very blessed man. And 
happy and full of joy. In, so. Interesting. You know, the very last verse in that book says, Job died uh, full of days. Well, that's a really poor translation. Yeah. It means fully satisfied and content. Wow. And looking back over his life, you know, all he had lost was still there. But what he had that God gave him afterwards uh, was enough to make him fully satisfied and content. And, you know, we've used this phrase in the past that after Job came face to face with God in his pain, Job learned to dance again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he learned to dance. And I'm sure that I guess these three names, Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hapuk, I guess they were girls. They sound kind of feminine, but I don't speak Hebrew. Maybe you can. But that means they got married and yeah. he danced at their weddings. You know, how yeah. cool is that? Yeah, it is. Indeed. Especially from the man whose lips said, I will never know joy again. Wow. And, you know, John, I think the only thing we can say is we, we note this in a later chapter, but we can go ahead and say it now. One of our favorite phrases in all the Bible, but God. This may have hurt like hell, but God is writing the rest of the story. <laughs> Amen. Guess the phrase of the day is, he does bring beauty from ashes. Mm. Wow. Good thought. Dear friends, we're really blessed to have you here on this episode of the podcast. When, when talking about Frank's newest book, Finding God in the Gray, The Lonely Path of Pain, check it out on Amazon. Uh, stop by our website, OurResoluteHope.com. Look around, browse around, check out what we have there. Pop us an email. Let us hear from you. Mm -hmm. uh, and don't forget to check us out on all of our other social media platforms. Pastor Frank's got a Facebook and Instagram and some other things as well. iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, wherever you hear your podcasts. And as we wrap this up, as always, this has become now uh, almost a verbatim statement. We remind you from Hebrews chapter six, that we have this hope as an anchor for our souls, a living hope, Jesus, a resolute hope. So today and always choose that hope, choose Jesus. Thanks for listening. We trust that you've seen Jesus today and you know that no matter what you're facing, he offers you himself, his own life. He wants to live his life with you, in you and through you as you trust Him and walk by faith in this troubled world. You've been listening to Our Resolute Hope Podcast. For more information, find us online at OurResoluteHope.com and check out our social media channels under the name Our Resolute Hope.